Hi, this is Landon. Hey, it's Monique, and we're back in my kitchen of knowledge this month. Thank goodness. I know, we Don't were know missing it. I don't know if I can handle your mother again. <laughs> no, that's true, and of course being in the pitch blackness of uh, Burnaby Hospital. So nice to be back here having plum cake, and for my mother's garden, by the way. And coffee. So, and, and nicely enough, the the nurse educator from Burnaby did get back in touch with us, <laughs> and she inquired with maintenance as to why the lights might have gone out. And apparently, we just weren't moving around enough, which is a bit shocking. Because I we, know, yeah. If anyone's seen me, I kind of talk. Both of us talk with our hands, so a little shocking. Apparently, the lights went out because they thought we weren't there anymore. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to start talking this month about Rogam and methotrexate. Now, one of the sadder presentations that come into the emergency department is a woman who comes in with her first trimester bleed. And often in emergency departments, we're concerned about ruling out an ectopic pregnancy. And often the patient is worried about the viability of their pregnancy or his her pregnancy, excuse me. So within working up the patient for ruling out ectopic pregnancy or viability of the fetus, we have to do certain diagnostic tests, and we may or may not have to give either Rogam or methotrexate, and occasionally both of those things. But I find, but we find that nurses don't really understand the mechanism of action and what they should tell the patient, so we thought it would be kind of a good idea to review it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We learned things. We did. Yeah, which is always good. So to start, let's just review what a good history from a woman who comes in with first trimester bleeding is. So may or may not remember from nursing school, for some of us, uh, the GTPAL, which is a great way of kind of getting their obstetric history. Uh, So G stands for gravida, and that's the number of times a woman has conceived, including the current pregnancy. T is term births, so that's the number of times a woman has carried a pregnancy to at least 37 weeks and delivered. P is preterm births, the number of times a woman has delivered before 37 weeks gestation, but after 20. A is abortion, and this is the number of times a woman has lost a pregnancy. And that's whether it was elective or a spontaneous Absolutely. Or miscarriage. And, and I know I've worked with nurses in the past who don't think the word abortion, it's a medical word, and spontaneous abortion is the true way to to call it a miscarriage. Right. Uh, So that includes either elective or spontaneous um, abortions before 20 weeks gestation. And then L is uh, living children. So that's how many live births um, the person had. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another good thing to kind of touch on is is what the risk for ectopic pregnancy is because first trimester bleeding you always want to be thinking that that might be the the problem so people who are at higher risk of an ectopic pregnancy pregnancy after tubal ligation makes sense after non-laparoscopic tubal ligation about 12 percent of pregnancies are ectopic and after laparoscopic tubal ligation about 50 percent of pregnancies are ectopic that's pretty high isn't it when you think about it yeah as well, anyone who's had previous tubal surgery for some reason, or a previous ectopic that you know, They're more at risk had it of before, get one. it again. Sure. Yeah. yeah, In vitro fertilization, about 2% of IVF pregnancies are ectopic. So not a huge number, but we're seeing definitely an increase in IVF um, treatments being done. Uh, it's higher in women with a history of damaged tubes or previous ectopic pregnancy. So they're, yeah. they're already a high-risk group because they're getting IVF for some reason. A lot of times it would be because their tubes are have some pathology in them. So, again, they're a higher-risk group. Uh, and anyone who has an IUD who gets pregnant, about 16% of those are ectopic. So it's kind of your 
your groups, people who've had surgery, tubal ligation, IVF, or people with IUDs who are pregnant are yeah. at higher risk. You probably need to ask about sexual um, history as well, because if they've had multiple chlamydia or gonorrhea, they could have actually damaged their fallopian tubes as well. And I guess the big question is, just because somebody says that they have had a tubal ligation or an IUD and you assume that they're bleeding, you assume that they could not be pregnant. But with those stats, really, it's important that we check everybody. And uh, a lot of times the urine pregnancy is not very reliable. So definitely a quantitative beta HCG um, serum, if you have any concerns, would probably be safer. The other thing that we often need to quantify, which is very difficult for a lot of people, is how much is bleeding. When we talk about vaginal bleeding, many women overestimate. Because I don't think anyone ever says, oh, it's just a bit. Exactly. And, you know, often you kind of ask them how many pads or tampons. And really the stats have actually shown that that really isn't very helpful either because it's really based on the hygiene practices of women rather than how much they're actually bleeding. We've talked, they've actually, how weird are these that there are studies that have actually looked at weighing tampons, weighing pads, giving them pictures to show them how much these are. Personally, I think I kind of rely more on the patient's chemodynamic status. Are they tachycardic? Because people don't get, women shouldn't get tachycardic with normal periods. So I don't worry too much about it, but if they have, um, positional tachycardia, then maybe there's a bit more weight loss. If they're quite pale, if their hemoglobin is quite low. I do ask about clots, though, and whether they're flooding their pads or tampons or clothes, which kind of gives me a sense of of the, the amount of bleeding. But diagnostically, really, we should just be doing a CBC, a quantitative beta HCG, which is your pregnancy hormone, and the RH factor. And then, of course, we then move on to an ultrasound. There are many causes for bleeding in the first trimester, and we're not really going to be talking about that, but just briefly, they kind of range from very benign causes like implantation bleeding, something called subchorionic hemorrhage or hematoma, which is just a small clot that collects behind the placenta, and it just kind of moves out, and then the placenta adheres to the uterine wall, postcoital bleeding, all those benign issues. And then, of course, there's concerning causes like ectopic pregnancy, miscarriage, placenta previa, uh, or abruption. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're just going to focus on the Rogam and the methotrexate. So the regardless of the cause of vaginal bleeding, our, our message today is that it is important that all RH negative women be given Rogam. Mm-hmm. So before we under, try to understand why we would give that It's important to understand what we mean by being RH negative. And so a little review on that. People are either RH positive or negative, and that's the plus or minus or Mm -hmm. positive or negative with your blood type. Uh, RH positive people have an RH antigen, which is also the RH stands for the rhesus factor. Uh, It's also called the D antigen on the surface of their red blood cell. So they just have this extra little bit hanging Mm -hmm. on their red blood cell. RH negative people do not have that antigen. The antigen is inherited, like eye color. So you typically would receive it from yeah. your one of your parent. And the positive antigen is the dominant yes. antigen. So if one of your parents is positive, you're more than likely than not to be positive. Positive, yeah. Now, when an RH negative woman carries an RH positive baby, mm-hmm. small numbers of the baby's red blood cells may get into the mother's bloodstream. So that can just happen during pregnancy. It can also... And, 
likely would happen during, during delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the mothers, and, and can also happen just from trauma as well. Like mm-hmm. A small fall can disrupt the placenta a little bit. And uh, those of you who've done trauma training, there's always that consideration Concern. with yeah. an obstetrical trauma. The mother's immune system, once that positive red blood cell gets into the negative mother, her immune system sees that as something foreign because it doesn't recognize the antigen. So it goes to work producing antibodies against it, much like any bacteria, virus, anything foreign in the body. That's what it does. These antibodies are formed to protect the mother against Rh positive red blood cells because it thinks it doesn't understand that that's what those are. So unfortunately, those antigens then can pass back into the baby mm-hmm. that she's carrying. And those antigens... Oh, the antibodies, atta- sorry. Sorry, the antibodies. Yeah. Thank you. That's okay. The antibodies then go into the baby through mm-hmm. the placenta yeah. and start attacking the baby's positive red blood cells because they don't understand they're now in the baby where these positive red blood cells are supposed to be. Yes. So that can cause uh, anemia in the baby, jaundice, heart failure, all kinds of bad things. Mm-hmm. And so the reality is in um, the majority of countries in the world, this just shouldn't happen. No, absolutely. Um, and this is an easy thing to fix. So this condition is known as hemolytic disease of fetus and newborn, or HDFN. Um, interestingly, it does not typically affect the mother's first baby because it's actually not standard that these blood, this blood would cross back and forth through exactly. the placenta. Yeah. But once you deliver the first baby, it's pretty well given that you will have some cross-placental blood sharing during the delivery. That's pretty well a given. So the antibodies are then formed, but there's no baby left inside until the next pregnancy. And right. then right away, those antibodies are going through and recognize, because they have that memory, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to just prevent that altogether. But mm-hmm. it is typically the second pregnancy that is the problem. Yeah. The interesting thing really is an RH negative mom is most likely to be exposed to her baby's blood during the last three months of her pregnancy and during delivery. So that's really kind of why we determine when we actually give the Rogam. Right. Yeah. So basically what's going to happen then is an RH negative mother will get a dose of Rogam at around 28 weeks of pregnancy. And a second dose will be given for added protection within 72 hours after the delivery of the baby if the baby's found to be Rh positive. Mm-hmm. There's, there's multiple phases in the, the pregnancy process where we can determine um, Rh factor. So before the baby's birth, Rh blood type is can only be determined through an invasive procedure like amniocentesis. Uh, so we often will just assume that the baby is Rh positive and give Rogam. If the baby's RH negative at birth, the mother won't get that second dose of Rogam. And just in case your patient asks, does this Rogam harm the fetus? There have been no reported issues and millions of doses have been administered safely to RH negative mothers who've delivered healthy babies and there are no preservatives in it. Mm-hmm. So so what is Rogam is the next logical question. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what it is, it's, it's a sterile solution, obviously, and it contains antibodies to the RH factor. Mm-hmm. The antibodies are derived from human plasma. So when Rogam is injected into the muscle of an RH negative mother, these antibodies circulate in her bloodstream and protect her against any RH positive red blood cells from the fetus. And her immune system then sees no need to take any further action. Exactly. Thereby creating true biological antibodies that can then travel through the placenta. So it kind of deals with it in the mother, doesn't Mm -hmm. let it get to the baby. 
So what are the recommendations of when Rh negative mothers need to have Rogam? This is something that you could sort of see where these might get missed in emergency departments if you didn't have a team kind of watching for this. So during every pregnancy around 28 weeks gestation, now most people in, in our world for sure have some prenatal care and that would get checked. But again, you never, you never know what kind of mother might be coming through the door and, and that might be a consideration. After any invasive procedure like amniocentesis, an RH negative mother would get it. Uh, any type of vaginal bleeding during pregnancy, so there we go, there's our topic today. Mm-hmm. Uh, any miscarriage or spontaneous abortion or therapeutic abortion and any ectopic pregnancy. So that's casting quite a wide net. Yeah. And uh, this is for all RH negative mothers. Yeah. Often patients or nurses want to know if the fetus is very young, whether it is still necessary to give Rogam, and the answer is yes. The RH factors present on the red blood cell from the time the fetus is eight weeks old, because often mothers can be off by dates. It's better to be safe. Mm -hmm. There are some guidelines around dosing after 13 weeks of gestation and before, so giving a smaller dose before 13 weeks. But again, that's far beyond us in yeah. as emergency nurses for yeah. sure to be considering that but just know that uh, the usual dose is 300 micrograms you might give a smaller dose some suggest 50 micrograms yeah. less than 13 weeks but most of you are going to have some standard um, absolutely from a network of obst- obstetricians giving <laughs> you recommendations there are minimal side effects to rogam some soreness tenderness warmth at the injection site and remember, listen to one of our podcasts about how to give an IM. Mm-hmm. There have been few people who've reported fever, chills, and headache and fatigue. It's, it's pretty well like any immunization type complication reaction. So in summary, all of this is driven yeah. by knowing if the mother is negative, negative. and positive. Yeah. So it's important that you order an RH factor blood test. Now, in a lot of hospitals, that just comes with ordering a group and screen, mm-hmm. uh, blood group and antibody yeah. screen. Some hospitals, it might be separate. So yeah. again, know your your thing. And it's a bit of a thing with me is when nurses order, uh, don't understand the difference between a group and screen or a type and screen, you may yeah. call it, and cross-matching blood. Absolutely. It's not that we need to cross-match them against some other human's blood. We just need to know their blood type and do an antibody exactly. screen. Because you don't really need an entire cross match unless your patient is exsanguinating to right. death. So you just need to know the RH factor. So ordering so. a group and screen is like a two minute drip Dealing. it in a few little test tubes and they can tell you, whereas cross match is much more complicated. Absolutely. Thank you. So why don't we move on to uh, ectopic pregnancies and methotrexate. So we've kind of talked about vaginal bleeding in the first trimester, making sure that you check all your women who come in that they're pregnant or not. And then if they're RH negative, you may need to give Rogam based on the recommendations that Landon just said. So now what if we do an ultrasound and we note that the patient is then um, has unfortunately an ectopic pregnancy. So there are like several treatment options depending on how early the pregnancy is detected and really the overall clinical condition of the patient. Expected management is the first kind of option. Yeah. And what we say is that if the patient has no or mild symptoms and the pregnancy is very small or we can't find it, the patient may only need close monitoring because there's a good chance for the that the pregnancy will dissolve by itself. Hmm. Patients will need serial quantitative beta HCG blood tests to make sure the hormone level is going down. 
If the hormone level doesn't go down or it increases, the patient may need either methotrexate or surgery. So what you're saying is if the hormone level is going down, yeah. the pregnancy has taken care of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. But if it's still going up, it's still growing and exactly. maturing in the wrong place. Exactly. Likely. And the fallopian tube, which okay. doesn't have enough space. So that's why we need to then consider, okay, this is bad now. Let's do something about it. So certainly methotrexate is definitely an option rather than having surgery. So methotrexate is an anti- is that, am I talking about that? Yes, I think I am. Methotrexate is an anti-metabolite chemotherapy agent, and it binds to the enzyme. See, me and my Dihydrofolate chemical... reductase. Thank I will jump in because much. I know she won't be able to say that I word. know, it's all these chemical Dihydrofolate things. reductase. Which is involved in the synthesis of purine nucleotides. Don't hurt yourself. I know, I almost did. This interferes with DNA synthesis, and it disrupts cell multiplication. So simply put, it attacks rapidly proliferating cells like fetal cells. So methotrexate has long been known to be effective in the treatment of leukemias, lymphomas, carcinomas of the head, neck, breast, ovary, and bladder. It has also been used as an immunosuppressant agent in the prevention of graft-versus-host disease and in the treatment of severe psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis. So that's probably where you may have heard of it uh, before. But understand that as nurses, you are giving a small dose of a chemotherapy drug. So you should be wearing gloves and be disposing of the gloves, syringe, and the needle in a chemoprotection waste disposable. That's really important. I think sometimes nurses kind of forget that it is chemotherapy drug. And right. so we do need to be cautious about our safety as well. And, and you'd be wise to look up within your own facility mm-hmm. what giving those drugs involves because a lot of these people were going to give them the one dose and send them home. Yes. And some of those drugs need them to do things at home as well exactly. around not sharing fluids with people, mm-hmm. having their own bathroom for exactly. 24 hours, that kind of thing. So so read your policies and it it is a big thing. They have a toddler at home as well who's now you know, getting into all this chemotherapy stuff yeah. for the next 24 hours. That could be bad. Yes, exactly. So just some help. Excuse me. This is exactly what Landon has alluded to, that you should maybe develop some type of a health teaching around treatment with methotrexate and what should patients be aware of when they get home. Now, when somebody gets methotrexate, we don't just give them methotrexate and say, okay, there you go, you're on your own. They do actually have to follow up and they do have to have serial pregnancy hormone tests to make sure it's going down. Sometimes they need an additional dose because it hasn't worked. Side effects with only one dose are not very common. There have been some reports of a little bit of mild abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, lack of appetite, diarrhea, some mouth sores, visual discomfort, irritation, uh, some liver problems, increased sensitivity to the sun. But that's been really like very random type reports and certainly not something that we see. And interesting that those are all areas with rapidly growing, growing cells, cells that are rapid, that are often replaced. All the gut ones, yeah, the mouth and the liver. Absolutely. Um, and well, so you may, yeah, exactly. But these are the, some of the symptoms you may see with people who are getting methotrexate regularly right. for rheumatoid arthritis and things. But with one dose, probably not going to happen. Probably not going to yeah. happen. 
Now, during treatment, patients should not have sexual intercourse, no vitamins that contain folic acid, multivitamins, materna, as these may actually prevent the methotrexate from working properly, shouldn't have any alcohol, and avoid direct contact with the sun for at least the first two to three days after the injection. Some patients may ask when they can try to become pregnant after being treated with methotrexate, and often the levels of HCG has to be cleared, which could take up to six weeks. But often patients are recommended to wait one to six months before trying to become pregnant to ensure the medication has been cleared from their body and not still hanging around. I would recommend that if you are involved in giving methotrexate, it would be a good idea to develop a health teaching package for the patient. There's still a small risk of fallopian tube rupture, so direct the patient to to return to the emergency department if there is increasing abdominal pain, bleeding, lightheadedness, so any kind of hemodynamic instability. The last option is surgical, and it is necessary if the ectopic pregnancy is causing severe symptoms, bleeding, or high quantitative beta HCG levels. In these cases, unfortunately, methotrexate is probably not going to work, and a rupture becomes more likely as the time passes. So don't forget, though, again, even in these folks, we need to know what their RH factor is because if they're negative, they need to get Rogam, even if you're giving them methotrexate. Even if you're chemically aborting the pregnancy, they need Need, the the Rogam. Absolutely, they do. And in order to do that, we need to know their RH factor. Exactly. Perfect. Well, that's a great review. That's a good review. Yeah. And education for you. Yeah. Dihydrofolate reductase. Okay. Um, I'll practice that tonight before I go to bed. So in summary, a good history from the nursing side should include the GTPAL, which is gravida, term babies, preterm abortions and living children, uh, ectopic risk and bleeding. Uh, Diagnostics need to include a plasma quantitative beta HCG and an RH factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, indications for Rogam in an RH negative mother include any vaginal bleeding, ectopic pregnancy, any 28-week gestation, and 72 hours post-delivery with an RH positive baby, and any invasive procedures. Mm-hmm. So really, I see nursing's role in that is to be the, the little flag waver and go, hey, did you think about Rogam? Mm-hmm. This kind of meets... One so, of those criteria, absolutely. And, you know, the little prompting that we so creatively do at times. <laughs> uh, and methotrexate is a viable option for a stable early ectopic. It's a chemotherapy drug. And as such, those who are giving the IM dose should be wearing uh, proper personal protective equipment. Go by your hospital's policies uh, and dispose of all of it into a proper disposal container. Uh, Many of you will know the term of cytotoxic precautions. That's Mm -hmm. one of the the buzzwords that we use for that. So if you weren't quite sure what we were talking about, cytotoxic precaution might be a familiar word to you. Uh, And develop a good teaching package for patients upon discharge. Yeah. And at the very end, don't forget that many of these patients who are having a planned pregnancy or maybe an unplanned pregnancy, but then all of a sudden... They've accepted it. Exactly. This is a loss, right? It is a loss. So really kind of think about those emotional pieces of supporting the family, both the parents or the mother and the father, and explain to them that they are going to feel grieving. Their pregnancy hormone levels are going to be all over the place. So it is important that we kind of address those concerns as well. It's such a horrible place to have this happen is an emergency department. Ultimately, you wish it wouldn't happen there. And it's it's easy to become transactional sometimes in our emergency. And I know mm-hmm. where we work, a lot of these patients end up in a minor treatment area yeah. 
where it is very transactional relationship. Yeah. And sometimes we have to step back and go, this is a major life event for these for people. Person. Let's yeah. change our focus a bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can stay in the room a little longer. We don't necessarily need to put the next laceration in there exactly. right this moment. And yeah. and just take that moment to go, oh, this is one of those times we actually can have an impact on someone's Somebody. future. Yeah. yeah, especially with methotrexate particularly, because a lot of times because it's a chemotherapy drug, it needs to be um, mixed together in a cytotoxic yeah. Uh, t- um, what is that Fume called? Fume hood. And so it takes a long time. And so those poor patients are waiting sometimes up to two hours. So mm-hmm. just kind of keep that in the back of your mind that we're treating the entire patient, including their emotional well-being. Excellent. Well, I think that's great for this month. Great. And we'll talk to you next month. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, Ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca